The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Hello, everyone. I'm one of the pastor's sons here at Westway Christian Church. I've been wanting to say that forever. Um, so if you don't know me, I work for a ministry in Kearney, Nebraska called CSF, and I specifically work at the University of Nebraska in Kearney. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but it's possible to get paid to talk about Jesus. And that's what I do, and I think it's the best job in the world, and I don't understand why more people don't want to do it. It's great. So uh, international students from all over the world come to the United States to study. It's about a million every year. And somewhere between usually about 250 and 300 come to the University of Nebraska in Kearney. Many of them come from what, if you are familiar with missions, we call the 1040 window, but are from nations where they don't have access to the gospel. And so my job is to share Jesus with them, and that is a part of what I'd like to talk about today. But just like my dad said, a core part of that is love. So I'd like to start by reading two texts with you that we don't normally read together, but I think as we talk about them, some patterns will begin to emerge. And the first is Peter's denial of Jesus. So we're going to start in John 18, verse 15 to 18. And if you have the Pew Bibles, that's on page 674, 675. So this is after Jesus' arrest. Simon Peter followed Jesus, as did another one of the disciples. That other disciple was acquainted with the high priest, so he was allowed to enter the high priest's courtyard with Jesus. Peter had stayed outside the gate. Then the disciple who knew the high priest spoke to the woman watching the gate, and she let Peter in. The woman asked Peter, you're not one of this man's disciples, are you? No, he said, I am not. Because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire, and they stood around it warming themselves, and Peter stood with them, warming himself. So in this first part, Peter's recognized because he was with John, because he was with somebody that they knew was a follower of Jesus. They assumed, rightfully so, even though he lied, that this man was a follower of Jesus as well. So let's skip to verse 25 to 27, and it says, Meanwhile, Simon Peter was standing by the fire warming himself. And they asked him again, you're not one of this man's disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, no, I am not. But one of the household slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? Again, Peter denied it. And immediately a rooster crowed. In this story, again, Peter's recognized, but this time it's because he was in the garden with Jesus. He was recognized because of where he was, and that was how they knew who he was. Okay, so there's one more, and we're going to need to turn back a little bit to Luke 22, verse 59. And in the Pew Bibles, that's on page 658, if you're following along in there. And this is, again, the same story, just told in a different gospel, and so some different details are given. About an hour later, someone else insisted, This must be one of them, because he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. 
Now here, Peter is recognized a third time, and this time it's for his accent. It's uh, in math, Matthew gives that detail is because he spoke like a Galilean, and so they knew he was from the same place as Jesus. So because he's from the same place, he must be a follower of Jesus. So he was recognized because of who he was with, he was recognized because of where he was, and he was recognized because of where he was from. But it's not enough to be recognized as a follower of Jesus because of your Christian friends or family. Your Christian friends and family don't make you a Christian, nor will it be the reason why somebody else wants to have what you have. Sometimes I have students who uh, see me with someone and they assume that since I'm with that person and I'm a Christian, that that person must be a Christian too. Sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong. It's not enough to be recognized as a Christian because of where you go. Going to church might make others recognize that you do follow Jesus, but it won't lead them to imitate you and glorify God because of you. And I think most importantly for the ministry I do, it's not enough to be recognized as a follower of Jesus because of where you came from or what you came from. It's not enough because you're an American, because you're from Nebraska, because your family's Christian. People that I work with, some of them are from countries where 99% of the population is Muslim. And so if you're in their country, you could assume that basically everybody you meet is Muslim. And so when they come here, they assume that America is the same country because that's what they've heard. America is a Christian country. But they're often wrong. And I would propose that these recognitions often do more harm than they do good. People who go to restaurants and pray for their meals on Sunday afternoons don't always demonstrate Christ's love and grace. And Americans don't always act and live like Christians are supposed to act and live. So if this isn't, right, this isn't how Jesus wants us to be recognized, how does Jesus want us to be recognized? So I'm going to start with an example again of Peter, and this is the second text I'd like to talk about today. And then we're going to go and look at some of Jesus' words and how he wanted his people to be recognized. So we're going to go to Acts chapter 4. Again, on the Pew Bibles, that is page 680, and we're going to start in verse 3 when you get there. So in this story, Peter and John, the same two men from our last story, are, uh, are preaching Jesus' name, and they get arrested for it. And there's more context to it than that, but that should be about all you need to know in this situation. So they get brought in, and they are going to appear before some men, and this story lists them. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it. So the number of believers totaled about 5,000 men, not counting women and children. The next day, the council of all the rulers and the elders and the teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, by what power or by whose name have you done this? Because they had just healed a man. That was a detail I forgot that is important. So before we go forward, we need to know Annas and Caiaphas are listed in the Gospel of John as the two men who sent Jesus to Pilate to be executed. And now, Peter and John are standing before them with the opportunity to tell them about Jesus. Now, this is, this is crazy. Have you ever been in the situation where your body had like a nervous stress response and like you, you were shaking? Maybe if you were up here right now with me, you'd be doing that because some people don't like public speaking. Or your, your legs, like you couldn't stand still. Your bones were moving inside of your body. 
and you can hear your heartbeat, and a few seconds while you're waiting for what to say just feels like minutes while you're gathering your thoughts and thinking. Like it's a, a final presentation in a class, or a question that somebody asked you that you know is going to determine the future of that friendship or relationship, or an interview that's really important and you need the job, but you're nervous. This is like probably what Peter and John were thinking times about a million. Remembering their times with Jesus, thinking of the words that they were going to speak and the things that they had heard Jesus say, wondering if they had really seen the man three days after he died, and how to put all of these things into words and speak them. But most importantly, they were probably wondering if they were about to suffer the same fate Jesus did. And I even wonder if they might have been close to the same place where Peter had denied Jesus the first time. So Peter begins to open his mouth and says some really interesting things. So we're going to read on in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of our people, Are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how this man was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. The man you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, The stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So that's what Jesus said, and how did these men respond? The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. In that last story where Peter denied Jesus, he was recognized because of insignificant reasons. He was recognized for lame reasons, and he denied Jesus. But in Acts 4, Peter's recognized for his boldness to proclaim Jesus' name. Now, there's an apologetic aside here where what would make somebody change that drastically? What would make somebody change from this scared, weak man who is hiding to somebody who is boldly proclaiming to men who have the power to kill him? It's Jesus. It's that he saw the risen Messiah. But there's another detail that we need to focus on, and it's that Peter and John were ordinary men like all of us. They were just fishermen. They weren't, they hadn't been to the, the best seminary in the land they were fishermen. And Peter gives us this beautiful example of how to boldly speak the truth. Starting with, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. All throughout the New Testament, you see this theme that when people of God speak his word boldly, they're not alone and they're not left by themselves. But instead, they're surrounded by others. They're surrounded and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Secondly, Peter was respectful. He started by saying, rulers and elders of our people, and he didn't swear at them, he didn't scream at them, but he told them the truth. He spoke the truth clearly and freely while still being respectful. And I think this is in contrast with two common approaches we see today. The first is this idea that we can't say anything that might be troubling or offending, offending to the people we're talking to, that we can't challenge them and push them beyond their knowledge. 
So in 2019, only three years ago, I guess four years ago now, uh, there was a study that found that 47% of millennial Christians thought it was wrong to share personal beliefs with someone who disagreed with them in hoping that that person would change to their faith. 47% of millennial Christians thought it was wrong to share their faith in hopes that the other person would change. And if you are in this room and you're challenged by what I just said because you think it's bad that I said that statistic like it's a bad thing, if you think that statistic should be higher, you need to get into the scripture because scripture does not teach that. Scripture teaches the opposite of that. However, the other approach we often see is this, I'm just going to say what I think, and if I offend anybody, I don't care, and I'm just going to be as brash and as much of a jerk as I can. That is also not in Scripture. We pridefully want to, want to speak about ourselves, and we lose that respect for others. We need to make sure that the right thing is what is offensive, because when you look in here, the thing that's going to offend them, which, when what Peter is saying is, is that they killed Jesus and that Jesus rose from the dead. Those were the things they didn't want to hear. The right thing needs to be the thing that might offend people. Biblically, biblically, we need to recognize that Jesus' disciples were known for boldly and lovingly speaking the truth. But the kicker of that is that the truth is about King Jesus. It's not about anybody else. And Christians have that responsibility to share it. However, there are some other ways, too, that Christians are supposed to be recognized that we learn about specifically through the words of Jesus. And so we're going to be looking at Jesus's last directions to his disciples in the book of John. So we're going to start in John 13, 33 through 35. And Pew Bibles, that's on page 672. So, this is Jesus' last direction to his disciples, and so you know it's important. You know it's the last thing that he's going to get to say to them before he moves on. Dear children, I will be with you only a little, little while longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I am going. So now, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Jesus' disciples, the church, should be known by how we love one another. Our love should be radically different than the world's love. As Jesus said, the world only loves people who love them back, but we are supposed to love everyone. I have a story for this, and it's from one of our Chinese students, and this happened before I was ever in Kearney. And what happened was, he had gotten a car and was driving his car and hit another family's car. Now, most of us, if somebody hit our car, we would probably be frustrated and upset, but the people whose car he hit loved Jesus. And they saw through any anger they might have been feeling and saw this kid who didn't know him. So they welcomed him in, into their home. The rest of the time that I knew that student, when I would drop him off at the end of his time where we would be doing something, I would drop him off at their house. They treated him like, they were, like he was their own child. And this guy could not understand it. He was from a culture where you didn't show love to strangers, and you especially didn't show love to people who hit your car. 
And so when, when we were talking about this kind of thing, he was like, I just don't get it. Why would somebody do that? He thought it was stupid that we would love somebody so radically after they hurt us. But we do need to talk about this verse specifically talking about Christians' love for one another. Our love for people outside of the faith community can only come from and begin with our love for one another. And there are some major enemies of the church's love for one another. The first one that I frequently see is denominational disunity or disunity based around different beliefs that we have. We start these, these little fights over things that, yes, are important, doctrine is important, but aren't important enough that we get to not stop showing somebody love. The second thing I want to talk about is gossip. In a town like Scott's Bluff, I know it. I lived here for about two and a half years. There is a lot of gossiping. I live in a small town now in Kearney. There is a lot of gossiping. And when churches are gossiping about each other, gossiping about businesses, gossiping about their friends or neighbors, it destroys love. And no outsider wants to be a part of a community that, sh that, that demonstrates love by gossiping to each other. So we had some international girls who were coming to our ministry, and they were only there for a year because they were exchange students. But as they were leaving, my coworker Jane asked them, why did you keep on coming? What was it that made you stay in at CSF? And they said, because we knew that when we came there, the American girls loved us. We knew that they wanted us there. And that started because those American girls loved each other. And even if they weren't all best friends all the time, they demonstrated Christ's love for each other. And so they demonstrated Christ's love for people outside of that as well. Second thing I want to focus on is in uh, chapter 15, 1 through 8, which should still be on the same page. And that's that Jesus is, uh, Je we will be recognized as Jesus' disciples by how we live. So I'm going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 8. I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't bear, produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit, so that they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me, and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile and burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want, and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples, and this brings great glory to my Father. We will be recognized by our fruit, by the things we do. But as Jesus makes very clear in verse 4 and 5, we can't bear fruit, we can't show that we are Jesus' disciples if we aren't remaining in him. Remaining in Christ is necessary to living out what he says. So I'm sure everyone in this room has some sort of skill that they like to do, whether that's woodworking or horseback riding or anything else in the entire world. For me, I love target shooting. We lose those skills so quickly if we don't practice them regularly. 
How many people have you talked to where you say, hey, do you know a foreign language? And they say, well, in high school I took Spanish, but that was 15 years ago, and so I still know hola and donde esta el baño. We lose those things when we aren't regularly practicing them and staying in them. So why would we expect to be able to bear fruit in our lives that represents Jesus if we aren't remaining in Jesus through scripture and prayer? We prove to be Jesus' disciples by bearing fruit. And we bear fruit by remaining in him. So if we're known by what we do, we can say all we want about how much we love Jesus. We can show an emotion of love as much as we want for other believers or for outsiders. But if we don't live different lives, we've done nothing. And that's what 1 Corinthians 13 was talking all about. I hear this thing all the time, um, and that's where we're going to close out. That's where we started with this. And it is, preach the gospel at all times. Use words if, if you have to, if necessary. That's not really biblical. Instead, it's use words and you get the chance. We should be demonstrating Christ's love through what we do and through our words. So I want to finish this whole thing by asking the question, what happens when we are recognized by Jesus' disciples? And so that, for that, we're going to skip ahead a little bit in John 15 to verse 18 through 21. And this is what that says. They will do all this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. They would not be guilty if they had not come and I had spoken to them. But now they have no excuse for their sins. Anyone who hates me also hates my father. I think I read the wrong thing. 13. Ah, sorry, I read the wrong thing. My bad. That is a good verse, though. Um, so we need to go to, sorry, John 13, 30, 33 through 35. That was my mistake. Dear children, um, give me one second. 15, 1 to 8. Okay. <sighs> Thank you. I don't know what just happened. Sorry. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it. But you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally, they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They will do all this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. Jesus chose us out of the world, so the world is not going to recognize us as its own. And the persecution that we might face comes from people who don't know Jesus and don't know God. And while I was preparing this sermon, I was kind of faced with a problem or a dilemma that I was thinking about. And it was that we are supposed to be recognized as followers of Jesus, but the people around us don't know who Jesus really is. Sometimes they think they do. Many people today have this pop culture image of Jesus that just wants us to be uh, kind to each other and be vaguely happy and wants, wants, wants us to just be happy because what's happy is best for us. A few years ago, there was this Amazon show called Good Omens. I haven't seen it and I don't recommend it, but I've heard this thing quoted several times. And there are these two characters and they are seeing Jesus being crucified. And one says, what was it that he said that got everyone so upset? And the other guy says, be kind to each other. And then the, the first guy says again, oh yeah, that'll do it. 
this is the image of Jesus that the world has. And if that's the picture of Jesus you have, if that's the only picture of Jesus you have, when you run into the real Jesus, you're going to have some problems. Because yes, Jesus did say be kind to each other. He told us to love one another, and that's what we spent this whole sermon talking about. But if that's our only image of Jesus, then when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and none will come to the Father except through me, you aren't going to be following him. We frequently remake Jesus into our image, and he becomes the perfect image of the glory of me instead of the perfect image of the glory of God. I make this, I call him Mises, and Mises supports all of my political causes, and Mises judges the sins that I judge, and Mises ignores all the sins that I commit and that I ignore. When we make Jesus in our image, we fail to recognize him for who he really is. And when we meet followers of the real Jesus, we recognize them as opposition. But when we read scripture and when we read about who Jesus really is, he is the antidote to that. So going into chapter 16, verses 1 to 4, this is where they come in. I have told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith. For you will be expelled from the synagogues, and the time is coming when those who kill you will think they are doing a holy service for God. This is because they know neither the Father or me. Yes, I am telling you these things so that when they happen, you will remember my warning. I didn't tell you earlier because I was going to be with you for a little while longer. There will be people who hate us when we live as Jesus commanded us to live. And we live in this time where people don't know who Jesus is. You know that I went to Summit, and before I went to Summit, I went to another Bible college, and many of my friends from that Bible college have sadly fallen into this trap of starting to follow the fake Jesus that they wanted. They started to follow this, this Jesus who agreed with everything that they agreed with and wasn't the Jesus that we see in Scripture. And when we do this and we meet people who are truly following Jesus, it is, it is hard for us. Just like how today, though, we fight the version of Jesus that, that people have built in their image, Jesus had to fight self-centered expectations that people had of him. They wanted this war hero who was going to be a Messiah that would free them from the Romans. So we're going to look at our la- one of our last texts today, which is Matthew 5, 10 to 6. Uh, Pew Bibles, page 599. And this is the other thing that can happen when people recognize you as a follower of Jesus. Starting in verse 10, it says, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad, for great is the war that awaits you you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. That's what we just talked about. But, reading on, you are the salt of the earth. But what good is it if salt has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It, will be, it is good for, it will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on its stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your Father who is in heaven. 
Many people will persecute you, will lie about you, will say evil things against you because you're Jesus' follower. But some people will see you and give glory to God in heaven. So now's your chance to ask a question, and that question is, is this worth it? Is it worth it to demonstrate Jesus' love to others when they might think I'm weird for it? Is it worth it to live out a life that others recognize as following Jesus? Well, I have a couple of pictures that they're going to put up on the screen for you. This is my friend Marco, who is being baptized right there. Now, Marco uh, worked at the coffee shop that I went to a lot in Kearney. And um, he, one of my friends eventually invited him to do something, so we were together. And after everyone else had left, Marco and I were walking outside to our cars. And he said to me, you know, John, I've never been baptized. He, he, he decided to start following Jesus, but he hadn't been baptized yet. And his reason for that was because he was having a really hard time finding a church home and finding a place to connect. But he felt like he needed to be baptized in a building. And so we were talking a little bit, and I um, talked to him about the beginning of Acts, about a man named Philip who was walking alongside a chariot and ran into an Ethiopian. And this Ethiopian was reading from the scroll of Isaiah, and so Philip got into his chariot and started talking to him and began from Isaiah and told him the whole story of Jesus up through getting baptized. And as they were going past water, the Ethiopian said, there's some water. What's stopping me from being baptized? There was no building. There was no special space. It was a lake in the middle of the desert, somewhere between Jerusalem and Ethiopia. And that was where this man was baptized. And so I said to Marco, right now, if you want, I will go with you to Yanni Park, which is in Kearney. We'll go into the lake and I will baptize you. Now, when he didn't want to do it that night, I was a little bit relieved because it was like 40 degrees. But I would have loved to have been there for him in that moment. Instead, though, the next morning I saw him at the coffee shop. And he said, John, guess what? My friend Joe, who's the one baptizing him, is coming from Omaha this weekend, and Saturday morning I'm going to get baptized. And so Saturday morning, we went to CSF, we filled up the baptism tub right there, and we uh, baptized Marco. I have, another, I have another picture as well. This is my friend Uitro. Neither of us have ever been to Paris. Um, but his wife sent me this picture where the background was cropped out, and this was the best picture I had of you, Ichiro. So I decided to, um, to put it up there, so it's just a goofy picture. So, Uitro and I, um, he came to the U.S., and he had never met a real Christian in his life. This is a very common thing in Japan, where Uitro is from. And he started coming to CSF because there was a pretty girl there. <clears throat> and he kept on coming because he was experiencing love from Christians. Now, I got to Kearney in January of 2021. In uh, March or April of 2021, on Easter Sunday, Yuichiro was baptized because he wanted to follow Jesus. He wanted to be a part of that. And I was there for some of his early conversations where we were asking questions like, you know, I don't like, I don't like what this book says. It's challenging to me. And we talked about, okay, well, if you disagree with the Bible, it's because you're wrong. And we had some really real conversations about, about who Jesus is and what he's done for Yui. And so Yui decided to get baptized. Over the summer, I got to do his wedding to the pretty girl he saw at CSF, which was amazing. It was one of our, um, one of our former student leaders, which was um, really a pleasure. I'm here today to tell you that I have dozens of stories like Marco and Yuichiro. They don't always end with baptism. Sometimes they involve people who I think it will take a miracle from God in order for them to step into a church building, but I also believe, into a God who, believe in a God who performs miracles. 
Many people in this room have a list of names that they could give you, like Marco and Uitro. People who, because they chose to boldly and lovingly speak the truth about Jesus, because they chose to love others radically, and because they chose to remain in Jesus and show fruit in their lives, it was worth it to those people. And I promise you, if you do it, it'll be worth it for you too. So because I'm an international ministry, I think there's a law somewhere that says that international ministers have to give the Great Commission at some point during their sermon. And so I think I'm going to give it right here at the end. And this is what Matthew 28, 19 to 20 says. It says, that, uh, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for everyone who's in this room. Thank you for all the children who are in this room right now. We are so glad that they could be here with us. God, um, I pray that as we leave this room, we can be ready to be your light everywhere we go. I pray that we can, can lovingly speak the truth with boldness. I pray that we can respectfully speak the truth. God, I also pray that we can uh, demonstrate your love to others in radical actions. And I pray that we can... Um, bear fruit in our lives because we show you. Lord, I pray that <clears throat> everyone who's in here will leave this room and have a desire to make many Marcos and many Vitros. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.